Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, the one-stop shop podcast for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. As we continue our partnership with She the People, we are highlighting their list of 20 women of color to watch in 2020. We have two wonderful guests this week, Andrea Mercado and Lorella Preali. Andrea Marcardo is the executive director of New Florida Majority, an organization that engages historically marginalized communities to expand their participation in politics to make their lives and their community better. Can't wait for you to hear this amazing conversation. Andrea, thank you for joining us today. How are you during this time? Oh, you know, I think like everyone, just taking it uh, one day at a time. How are you? Hanging in there like everyone else. It's definitely an interesting time. But what has been really interesting for me to watch is how all of those people who truly didn't realize how politics impact their daily lives are now realizing it, especially people who haven't been really politically and civically engaged, who haven't voted a lot. But you are one of those people who has always been very politically engaged. So can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to get involved in politics and especially doing work around voting? First got involved you know, as a young person who just saw a lot of injustice all around me and felt it deep in my bones um, that we had to do something about it. And I was organized into organizations and into community um, organizations and helped co-found the National Domestic Workers Alliance and learned so much from fierce immigrant women across the country um, who were fighting for themselves and their families. And um, after the 2016 election, felt really committed to focus on Florida, on my home, where all of my family lives between Miami and Jacksonville, and really have been lucky to join the team at New Florida Majority, um, focused every day on how do we expand democracy? How do we protect democracy? um, And how do we build power of the people um, and center communities that oftentimes get left behind in political discourse. I was saying when it comes to uplifting people, I was actually really upset that I didn't go to the Democratic debate in Miami because you had this amazing large watch party that had a live band. So many people were excited about it. And I just thought it was the perfect fusion of politics and social gatherings and bringing people together. Why did you want to host that event during the Democratic debate? Well, you know, I mean, I think I was really inspired. It might have been one of the last times I saw you, Ashanti, um, by the She the People gathering and debate in Houston. You know, I mean, I think the work of really elevating um, the voices of women of color in particular, to me, I'm feels so important in a place like Miami, where, you know, when I was growing up, the political space was so dominated by men and by conservatism and machismo. I think it brings me a a lot of joy to help create spaces where Black and um, Latina and Indigenous women can, can come together and be our unapologetic selves and um, engage in politics our way. And 
drawing a lot of inspiration from women of color doing amazing things around the country. And that She the People, uh, New Florida Majority, Debate Watch Party in Miami was definitely a highlight last year. And, you know, right now as we're trying to adjust to the new normal of um, what does it mean to not be able to do in-person events and how do we engage people in politics online, I think we have to remember that, you know, we have to center um, ourselves, but also our joy, as well as, you know, our righteous indignation. Uh, I, I can't wait for us to get back to those days again, because the She the People Presidential Forum was so much fun. I'm definitely coming to your next event because... It just looked really fabulous, but you definitely hit on something that is new for all of us is how do we do this community work in this age of social distancing that we're now in? So when you're looking at New Florida Majority, what are some of the innovative ways that you're outreaching to people to try to fill in the gap during this time to make sure that people don't lose that enthusiasm and also keeping that eye towards November? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely a lot of online engagement. You know, we're doing a census uh, census and Chill event, trying to continue to have political spaces online that people can join remotely and connect with other folks and get information. But, I, you know, I think the other thing that we've been thinking a lot about is just the digital divide is so real. Um, I think I saw something that, you know, over 30% of families don't have um, Wi-Fi in their homes. And you know, so many young people just don't have access to a laptop, right? People are on their phones and with limited data plans. And so I think we've also been thinking about, we can't just reach out. I mean, yes, we have to reach people on um, Instagram and Facebook and Spotify and all the places where people are congregating, but at the same time, we can't leave our elders behind and people behind that don't have Wi-Fi in their homes um, and who could use just like a phone call of somebody checking in with them and see how they're doing and see if they need groceries or, you know, just share some stories and and talk, talk with them. And um, so I think we're trying to do a, a mix of both and, you know, and also making sure that we're still leveraging our collective voice in this time. I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, it's like who's in office matters um, and the, the failures of leadership, um, both in the White House and for us here in Florida, you know, our, our governor refused to shut down beaches and tell people that, you know, this was not a time for, for spring break, that we needed to stay at home. And he's been so resistant to do that. And so, you know, here in Florida, we have some of the lowest unemployment benefits in the country. It's only $275 a week. Um, and so many people are paid under the book, uh, under the table, um, or are undocumented and are ineligible for benefits of any kind. And so I think it really does call the question of how are we going to lift our voices collectively to fight for our families, for our communities, and make sure that, you know, it's not just corporations that are getting bailed out. And when talking about workers, you're one of the co-founders of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And even during this time, we are seeing, again, just the negative impact that 
a pandemic can have on domestic workers. So going into November, what are some of the things that our listeners should be looking for when candidates are talking about workers' rights, particularly when it comes to domestic workers and labor laws? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is that we can't leave people behind. And so we have to think about, you know, domestic workers and farm workers who are often paid um, under the table and people who work in restaurants. We can't leave folks behind. You know, I know the National Domestic Workers Alliance is encouraging people to continue paying your house cleaner in this time. Like if you're fortunate enough to have a job that you can work remotely from home, um, but you're not going to have somebody come into your house and clean it for you, consider, you know, the fact that you might be the only source of you know, that person being able to put food on their table. And, you know, when I think it comes to the elections in in November, you know, I think we're going to have a lot of, one, a lot of work to do to protect our elections, um, to make sure that our elections go forward, um, to insist that every eligible voter gets uh, a ballot in the mail that they're able to easily fill out and, and mail from the safety of their home. Um, you know, we don't know what, um, how long this, this crisis is going to last, but, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that we're protecting um, democracy and, and protecting um, the integrity of the elections. And so, you know, we're just doing our best to continue to reach out to people. Um, and I think everyone needs to understand, I think one of the things that we've really learned here in Florida doing some of our hurricane relief work um, is that how we show up for people in crisis matters. I think a lot of people, like you mentioned, are really frustrated with some of our elected leaders right now. And, you know, we can see around the country really unevenness of, you know, measures that are being taken. Um, and even when you compare, you know, what's being offered in the United States to what's being done in other countries. And when you talked about everyone having the right to vote, I have to give kudos to you and New Florida Majority because you worked with other groups in Florida to pass Amendment 4, which restored the voting rights of over 1.4 million people with felony convictions. And just for me, criminal justice reform, banning the box are all really important things. And I know we have a lot of listeners who are invested in this work. What tips would you have for them if they were looking to organize something like this in their state? Absolutely. I mean, we need to organize everywhere. Um, You can't talk about Amendment 4 without lifting up the incredible leadership of returning citizens, people who were directly impacted by our unjust laws in the state um, and the leadership of, you know, Desmond Mead and the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. And I think what was so inspiring to me about Amendment 4 was just to see so many different organizations, youth organizations, faith-based organizations, student groups, community groups, really coming together um, to win the largest reenfranchisement since women's suffrage. Uh, and, you know, I think it was a, a historic effort. And then, you know, after that victory, the kind of energy that all of us put into registering um, people to vote. You know, in Florida, there's 4 million young people and people of color that are eligible to vote but aren't registered or are registered to vote and aren't voting. And so, you know, we oftentimes, you know, don't 
we, we know where the voters are. We need to talk to them. We need to find ways to engage them um, and bring them, you know, into the process. And there's oftentimes this like overemphasis on these like Trump swing voters or these like really narrow slices of the electorate that miss the big picture of all those people out there um, who could be part of our electorate if we were to engage them and talk to them. And at New Florida Majority, we're... we're we registered over 70,000 people to vote in Florida since the Amendment 4 victory. And now um, a lot of people who volunteered with us and work on our voter registration team are, are busy calling all of those people to ask them how they're doing in this crisis that we're facing. And I think we oftentimes talk about, uh, and, and many of our sister organizations around the country, that, you know, democracy, it doesn't just happen on election day. It's something that we need to cultivate and nurture 365 days a year. So, it, you know, I think that those are the stories that, like, give me a lot of hope of organizers who are out there um, talking in, to their communities uh, week after week, building relationships, bringing people in. Um, there's so many people out there who are really interested in politics but have never gotten the invitation to be part of a movement for racial equity, um, a movement for gender justice, a movement for climate action. And so I think we definitely see that as part of our mandate is creating a political home where people can get involved and be engaged. And I love that. And that is so important because I just hear from people all the time is they're just always looking for like that one group where they feel that they not only share their same values, but they feel welcome and that people want for them to participate. And you've always been about that. New Florida majority is about that. So just thank you for that. And for our listeners, if they wanted to support your work, what are some ways that they could do that? Yeah, so um, folks can go to newfloridamajority.org or check us out on um, Instagram or Twitter, Facebook. Um, we also just launched in a coalition with other organizations here in Florida, floridacoronaaction.org. Um, as a space where people can find access to resources, food banks, or services, but can also get plugged in to advocacy efforts and um, sign on to petitions to, you know, call on the governor to do right by our communities, as well as volunteer to be part of this, you know, this effort. Help us, help us reach every elder, every young person, every family across the state, um, and to check in on them and see how they're doing and urge them to be a part of a movement for change. Fabulous. So I want to switch gears for a moment and talk about your plus one, Ashley Shelton from the Power Coalition for Equity and Justice. Why'd you pick Ashley for your plus one? Oh, I just think that there's, well, Ashley is just amazing. She's phenomenal. The kind of work that she's been leading um, in Louisiana to win elections, to win victories for marginalized communities. And there's so many amazing um, unsung heroes um, in our movement. And I, I think that Ashley is definitely one of them. There's like so many incredible black and brown women across the South in particular um, that get up every day trying to make a way and build power that centers uh, women and people of color. And so if you don't know about um, Ashley Shelton and, and her work, folks should definitely check out um, the Power Coalition and some of the incredible organizations that are a part of that effort. 
I love that. A common theme that we're starting to see in a lot of the plus ones is people highlighting women that are doing work in the South, which is just very close to my heart because the work that I do at Emerge was really with our Southern expansion to get more women running for office in the South. So I love that whenever we're lifting up our sisters down there. All right, Andrea, I have loved this conversation and I'm going to move us into our final question, our signature question that we ask all of our guests. What would you say to the brown girls out there listening saying, I want to be just like her? Uh, (laughs) I'd say that there's so many opportunities to be involved and there's so many ways to lead um, for your community. So I guess my advice is just, Find a, find a place to get in where you fit in. Find an organization that feels like home and feels like a place where you can learn and grow and learn from history too. And there's so many black and brown women that we can learn from like Ella Baker and Dolores Huerta and so many others who continue to guide us. Thank you for the conversation, Ashanti. Really enjoyed it today. Ah, thank you. This was great, and we'll chat with you soon. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise and BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com backslash BGG. That's Better H-E-L-P and join the over 700,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for the BGG listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash BGG. Meet Lorella Preelli. She is the Vice President of Community Change and Co-President of Community Change Action Fund, an organization working to make sure that communities of color and immigrant communities have the resources and power that they need to thrive. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Lorella, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's, um, you know, it's Monday and we're coming out of a, a couple of hard weeks and I think that the future, the immediate future looks both um, challenging and I like to think of it also as um, what are we called to do in this very difficult moment? That is such a, that's really powerful what you just said. And these really are interesting times where we are feeling the sense of grief 
it's always important to name it and that's what it what it is grief but always you know manage to keep our faith too that things will get better and how can we make things better and I think that's a great opportunity for us to talk about what actually drove you to want to get into the organizing movement well you know I think of this also in the there's a story of self there's a story of us and then there's a story of now and for me, this really started a story of self. Um, I was myself undocumented, um, grew up in the United States, but originally from Peru. I had a car accident that resulted in the amputation of my right leg when I was two and a half. And that was really the impetus for our move to the United States. First, it started as just trips, a lot of visits to Shriners Hospital in Tampa, Florida. And eventually my family made a decision to settle in Connecticut. And I discovered that I was undocumented and that's really how I came into organizing. I started to come into it really from uh, my experiences as someone who was cyberbullied um, for having one leg when I was younger and in middle school. And then began to have more formal training when I began to meet leaders of the immigrant youth movement. And so it was really grounded in my own self-interest at first, I have to be honest. I didn't know about the power of movement and moving from individual to collective grievance and action um, and came into it because I decided that I no longer wanted to sit on the sidelines and wait for someone to quote unquote fix the things. We always have choice and we have the agency to move our dreams into reality and you know, as someone who was undocumented, um, that was really game changer for me, that this realization that even though we were in it to really transform lives by changing and winning policy, that at the root and at the core of it, it was about transforming lives by changing and transforming our own notions of self and personhood and power and authority and choice. Um, and those were things that you know, people couldn't really take from us. So I want to talk a little bit more about the moment when you came out as undocumented. Astrid Silva from Nevada, she's one of my personal sheroes. And like you, she advocates on DACA so much. She talks about her story. Can you tell us a little bit about when you decided to come out as undocumented, like what was that moment like? Because there may even be some of our listeners who have not come out yet and have that strong and very real sense of fear. Yeah, this was, you know, I feel like the movement has different phases and I came into it when people were beginning to come out and had begun to use their real names. So there was this power that came with really, naming yourself and identifying yourself as undocumented, unafraid and unapologetic. And for me, I was in I was in college when I decided to come out. And in some ways, there was a number of things that sort of propelled me into this moment that served as catalysts for realizing I no longer could live a life of fear and shame. I spent a good amount of time feeling like just deeply ashamed um, and very afraid of being discovered. Being afraid of being discovered because it meant I carried the stigma, being ashamed of being discovered because it meant I could be detained and deported and separated from my family and my country. It was actually when I was a sophomore going into my junior year 
several things happened in my life, one of which, you know, I was doing this research fellowship at Quinnipiac University, which is where I went to school. And um, my mom had saved up money for us to get a car so that I could um, really be based in New Haven. Um, I was studying the different impact of municipal policies, looking at New Haven and Danbury, Connecticut, which had very different ways of treating immigrants in their city. And shortly after I got the car, I was actually rear-ended. And the reason why I think about this moment as a catalyst in my life was because in the course of doing the paperwork for the car accident I and doing all of the insurance paperwork, I realized or I learned that you know the $400 insurance payments that my mother was making every month was actually not just to cover for the cost of insuring our car, but it was actually for my friend's cars as well. It was not something that had been disclosed to me. Um, and so just, it was a really painful moment in my life. Um, also at a time when I had no one to really talk to about it because people didn't know I was undocumented. And just feeling like I had no no real agency in that moment and feeling like I was manipulated. And, you know, even in my engagement with my friend, my then friend, I couldn't be real, right? Because this person also was technically the owner of the car. Had, the title was in their name. The insurance was in their name. And so you're sort of trying to game out how do you protect yourself and your family in the midst of all of this. You know, we have, we, it's so important to remember in the work that we do, what were those moments? Um, and I think instead of retreating in that moment, um, it really served as a catalyst for um, who do I need to talk to in this moment? You know, how do I actually, um, how do I get involved? And I was connected to an organizer. His name is Carlos Saavedra, who was then with United We Dream, which is the national, the largest immigrant youth-led network. And you know, he got on the phone and he's like, what's your story? <laughs> and I was like, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> and you know, he's like, well, let me model it for you. And then I shared my story and he said, actually, you know, this is the perfect time because you can come to Kentucky. <laughs> I was like, Kentucky, huh? He's like, you know, in two weeks we have our national field planning meeting. This was in 2010. And that moment, you know, getting in a car and heading to Kentucky with, I think it was a large van. It was 14 or 16 of us, um, some mixed status. It was a mixed status van. Some people had U.S. citizenship. Other people were undocumented. And this was my first real sort of experience being with people who were in similar situations. You know, and I walked into a room and there were about 150, 200 young people. Some of them were wearing undocumented, unafraid, unapologetic t-shirts. And I was like, is this for real? Like, how could you, how do you feel that much pride, you know? And it's just that, began to change the course of my story and my life. And um, shortly after that, I decided to come out. I love that. I love that so much. And then shout out to you for them for having a meeting in Kentucky. I'm all about organizing in the South. So I absolutely love that they did that. And some of my favorite people live in Kentucky. So this is also telling people don't sleep on having conferences in Kentucky. It's actually a really great state. Don't Don't let the awful senators there make you not want to go there. In continuing to talk about how you have just been so unapologetic and outspoken, you continue to really speak up against the Trump administration and just their prolonged assault on immigrant rights 
and just the hatred that comes out of it. Right now, during the COVID pandemic, we're seeing the Asian community under attack, but simultaneously still seeing all of the other communities of color under attack. So with the 2020 presidential election coming up, when it comes to immigration reform, what should we be paying attention to, not only at the presidential level, but also at the state and local level too? Our movement has much work to do to really build power, um, to win transformational change. And, you know, at Community Change and Community Change Action, we have spent several decades really building a network called the Firm Network, Fair Immigration Reform Movement. And this is a network of state coalitions or state organizations that really focus on building the power of immigrants and driving change at the local, at the state, and at the federal level when they come together into this network. I think we've got to continue on that front. Like we can't get sidetracked, sort of move around from thing to thing, right? Because it's so easy to get caught up in the rapid response piece. We've got to do the right amount of rapid response and we have to do the right amount of long-term power building. And we have to drive campaigns that change lives and that ultimately win policy outcomes. And so when I think about this year, I think narrative and narrative power is critical. Um, We are already seeing the Trump administration drive a narrative and try to make COVID-19 about the China virus, as as he calls it, as opposed to, you know, this is what we have to deal with. It's here. How do we solve for it? How do we prepare as a nation to respond? And um, but I would say, actually, it's not even just about this moment, right? You think about the way that he launched his campaign. So we could also start there, um, that moment when he came down the elevator and and said that Mexicans only sent their worst people. Um, or we can, Or we can actually go back further and actually say the moment that we are in and the kind of constructs that we have, the real structural barriers that we have, for people to live a life of dignity and freedom and justice, they started way before Trump and they will be here long after Trump unless we actually intervene and reckon with our history and our past and try to write a new chapter for the immigrant justice movement. So I like to think of it as um, it's it's not just a Trump problem. It's actually, um, you know, both Democrats and Republicans have built a system Um, that targets undocumented people, that seeks to identify, to apprehend, to detain, to deport them. And for many decades, there's been sort of, you know, an assumption and a practice that in order to win legalization, we have to actually build a more operationally robust deportation machinery And what you're seeing in this moment is actually a remaking of a movement that's trying to grapple with its history and trying to set a new course and trying to say, how do you actually decouple these things? That's not to say it hasn't existed before, like this is a new thinking, but I would say that living under Trump has turbocharged that kind of focus um, and that real commitment across movement to really enter into the practice of radical imagination, right? And to say, you know, we will not look and settle for the world as it is. Our job as social justice organizers is actually to remake it. And that starts in our own imagination, in our organizing practice, and then in its application in the world. 
And you mentioned community change action. So I want to say kudos to you because you are the first woman and the first woman of color to be appointed as co-president of community change action and vice president of community change. We love a trailblazing woman. So tell us a little bit more about the work that you all do. Yeah. So I would say, you know, our work is really about transforming lives and um, building power to win. And we believe at our core that those who are closest to the pain are closest to the solution. And that if we build a movement led by people who are impacted, led by low-income, low-income people of color, led by immigrants, that, that the community itself has the power to change policy institution, to develop the big ideas for change and to build the kind of narratives that we need in order to make those things real. And so that's really what community change is about. And I couldn't be more excited to be co-president of the organizations with my uh, partner in crime, Dorian Warren, who's, you know, a year and a half into the job. And so we both, you know, we're, we're now sitting in an organization that's 51 years old, that has 51 years of history um, and working with our staff, our partners at the national level, and importantly, at the state and local level to really think about how we change, how we win for immigrants, how we win for low-income people of color so that we can move some from survival to thriving is really the way I think about it. And, you know, if we build an electoral powerhouse, if we build people power, if we build powerful ideas and narrative power, we believe, right, that we can achieve something we haven't yet seen. And that's the beauty of community change. It's um, it's complexity, it's power, and it's beauty. And I'm excited to help write this next chapter um, with my team. Awesome. And someone on your team who you listed as your plus one was uh, Gracia Lima. Tell us why you chose her. Gracia is a powerhouse. She's based in Arizona, also formerly undocumented. Um, you know, when I think about Gracia, I think about young women of color who are really committed to not just winning for the sake of winning or not just winning because winning is important, but winning as broadly defined. Every time I have a conversation with Gracia, she grounds me in, you know, she leads, she's our political director. And so she really leads on building out our electoral plans, engaging with our partners to ensure that they have a theory to win and a path to power and victory in their states. And she's so grounded in all of that being shaped by the experiences of the people on the ground. And she's so grounded in seeing that, you know, winning isn't just about delivering Michigan and making sure that, you know, we we win in the state. It's also about the transformation that the organizations on the ground go through. And I'm excited for, I'm grateful for Gracia. And then I'm really excited to see how she continues to make community change action and our partners um, more fear, fierce, more powerful, and more impactful on the ground. Awesome. Okay, this has been a great conversation, and we're going to close it out with our signature question for all of our guests. What is your advice out there for all the brown girls listening saying, I want to be just like her? 
Oh, okay. So I came into, usually I have this practice every year and I'm like, what's my word for the year? And this, you know, and this year I actually said, well, what's really sitting in my heart? And um, the phrase I came up with is, soy el poder dentro de mí, which is, um, I am the power within me. And that's, I think, my single piece of advice for women, for brown women listening to this podcast, that so often we're trying to outsource the answers to someone else, right? Like you either follow someone on Instagram or you listen to a podcast, even in even this conversation. And I think it's fine to find hope in others. I think it's great to have mentors. Um, so long as you really develop the ability to listen to what you know is right in your heart and in your gut. And we live in a world that is constantly trying to take that away from us. That's trying to make us second guess ourselves. That's trying to put, you know, inject doubt into our dreams and our imagination. And so I would say to everyone who's listening, um, to really tap into the power that already lies within you. Thank you so much, Arella. We really appreciate you joining us. It's been great. It's been fun. Thank you. To learn more about the work Andre and Lorella are doing, visit the show notes to find out how to support their organizations. If you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay up to date with us on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com, and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The BGG Podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, brown girls. A hundred and one women currently serve in the House of Representatives. That's a record. But still, women make up just 23.2% of the governing body. That's where Women Belong in the House comes in. From Wonder Media Network, Hoshini Kaplan seeks to understand the state of gender representation in office and asks how Congress would change if it looked more like the people it represents. Jenny speaks with experts and women in the House of Representatives to learn about what it's like to serve in a place that wasn't built for you. I joined Jenny this season to talk about why cooperation is key to policymaking. You can listen to my conversation with Jenny on episode three of this season. Listen and subscribe to Women Belong in the House wherever you listen to podcasts.